Travelers spend a lot of time dreaming of the places they've just got to see while they're able. And guess what? Someone's already made a list for you. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and in a moment, Patricia Schultz joins us to offer a little inspiration for new adventures far and near. She's the woman who compiled a list of the 1,000 places to see before you die. That's the name of her book, and it quickly became one of the best-selling travel books of all time. I wanted each of the 1,000 places to be mini-adventures. Patricia Schultz is our guest to encourage us to visit some of the breathtaking places on our planet while we still have a breath to take. And later in the hour, we'll open the phones for your reports of places you visited where you felt an unusually strong connection to the world beyond. Whether it brought you goosebumps or just piqued your imagination, let us know about scary encounters from your travels. Happy Halloween. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're making the most out of the time we've each been given on this planet by getting a taste of some of its wide-ranging flavors and astounding beauty today on Travel with Rick Steves. There are millions of possibilities to sort through to pick your next travel destination, and the woman who summarized her favorite thousand joins us in a moment. And later in the hour, we'll field your calls and emails to help you plan your next travel adventure with practical tips and a confident attitude. We're at 877-333-RICK. And by email, our address is radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Patricia Schultz, who writes A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And this book has been a, a phenomenon in the, in the travel book industry, and, and it's just great to have Patricia with us today to learn more about this book and to think about some places we all might want to see before we die. Patricia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Did you actually write the book, or did you oversee the editing of the book? What was your role? No, no, it was me, all right. And um, to confirm, in fact, that it was a labor of love of one person alone, it was uh, an eight-year project from beginning to end. And really, it was drawn from an entire life of travel, but it was a consolidated eight-year period from the time I signed on to do the book until the moment the ink was dry and it was on the shelf so, no, it, it's pretty much all me. Yeah, I've been busy. It is a wonderful—it just feels good. This is a brick of a book, if ever there was in the travel business, and thumbing through it is just like spinning the globe. I can see why this book is so successful, because all of these thousand destinations are in bite-sized chunks, and in here we got Jogjakarta. Oh, you know, I was there. Cool. I made one of the, the places that Patricia thought made the cut, and uh, you yes. read it, and you can compare oh, your please. own— please. <laughs> I'm sure you've made about 99.9% of these places. <laughs> well, it must have been fun to put it all together— and it must have been gratifying to see the work completely done. What was it like after you had finished eight years putting this book together? You know, I've often thought that, boy, was this publisher lucky and having signed me up because I so love to both travel and then run home to commit it all to paper and try to capture the essence of how wonderful this most recent trip was, that I really was the perfect person because if you're going to take eight years to do something, you need that passion to get you up and out of bed every morning with a smile on your face. And in the eight years, I could have written for another eight years, but at that mm. point, the publisher was tapping his toe saying, <laughs> I think it's time. So I just have this inherent lust and wanderlust and passion for seeing the next thousand things and then the thousand after that. It's never enough. I never feel like I've seen it all. I never feel like it's time to sit home on the couch. And so I am, I think, a great traveler in that sense. I don't pretend to have seen it all, but I do pretend to have that great sense of curiosity that you absolutely need to have this be a profession that you can say you've accomplished some degree of success. And I feel that with the book because I see the numbers and I feel how excited people get to talk about it. And I see that it's a few years now. It came out in 2003. It continues. It maintains a certain degree of sales that is very unprecedented. And at the end of the day, it's simply because people love to travel and love to mm. read about where other people are traveling to that they might um, make happen in their own lifetime as well. Plus, your market is a little bigger than my market because people buy my Paris book if they're going to Paris. You can buy your book if you're just going to the bathroom for an extended sit, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, thank you for that analogy. <laughs> you, you have a huge market. Anybody who does travel or wishes they travel or who, you know, has traveled, this is the book that is your scrapbook of all the world's delights. 
It might, you know, you and know. It's true. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. I was just going to say that it is so perfect weather for the person who knows they're about to travel and isn't quite sure where to go, as well as the person who's not so sure when they're going to be able to travel next. But for that reason, it's the quintessential armchair tool because it is um, hopefully enlightening and exciting to think of the possibilities, whether you've got the airplane ticket booked or not. And I like to think that the demographic is all across the board because I was very conscious about that while writing the book. I wanted it to be for the graduate about to approach a gap year or the 65-year-old who's finally retiring and wanting to see everything they've only been dreaming about for the last 40 years. You know, a lot of people can spend eight years doing something very worthwhile, and they can be very talented and artistic and everything just right, but it doesn't strike a chord with the market. You're lucky you've uh, invested eight years into something and come up with something that really has struck a chord. To yeah. what do you attribute that? Well, I, th- I think it's um, like the perfect storm of circumstances. Um, first and foremost, I, I need to give a shout out to my publisher, Peter Workman, who is such a brilliant man and such a visionary because um, while other people were saying, you know, Peter, I don't know about this before you die thing. Um, he understood that if people found it to be irreverent, that was a good thing. And if people found it to be kind of marginally alarming, that was a good thing because this isn't a dress rehearsal and time is precious. Um, and also the baby boomer thing. There are close to, um, I think, 80 mm-hmm. million of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are taking longer vacations or vacations at all. The numbers are astounding how many people will bypass those precious two years to take no vacation time whatsoever because we're convinced from early on that, um, you know, your desk isn't going to be there when you come back after two weeks or the company is going to fall apart and crumble. And people are taking longer vacations. They're traveling a little bit more. They're spending a little bit more. They're going to places that are a little bit more far-flung. Uh, more adventurous, and usually that translates to more costly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just this inherent sense of travel that is nothing new. Um, people, you know, for 30 centuries now have been traveling since the ancient Romans kind of struck off to visit other parts of the ancient Roman Empire. I don't know. I'm also lucky to think that um, this all came together at a point where following September 11th and people stayed very close to home for a period of time. I live in New York City, the city I felt, you know, with a few muggings here and there to be a relatively safe city. And could we say that the day after September 11th? No, I think not. So slowly, slowly, people struck off and took to world travel once more. And numbers are, again, where they used to be. We have other things that are holding us back with an economy, et cetera, that's not so stable. But people will always travel, always, always, always. They may, you know, go to Europe for eight days instead of two weeks. They may go to, um, you know, Paris instead of a more costly African safari, but they'll always travel. I'm speaking, by the way, with Patricia Schultz, and she's the author of A Thousand Places to See Before. Before you die, Patricia spent eight years, what a wonderful chore, collecting all of these great travel destinations around the world. I love this quote that I read in your book, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the places and moments that take our breath away. Uh, We're talking about, in generalities here, take me to a couple of your favorite places, Patricia, in the book that actually take your breath away. Oh, um... That's such a loaded question because, you know, you always hear this stock question of what's your favorite place. And I once read such a perfect answer and they said it is my most recent trip. And I understood what this person was saying because you're still jazzed and you're still very much with a head full of very vibrant, colorful memories of your most recent trip. But um, I go way back sometimes to where it's cloudy and kind of fuzzy, and I'm not even sure when I was there or what the circumstances were. I remember being in Yosemite, and it was, yeah, I know people want something more exotic like Mauritius or Madagascar. You know, Woody Allen has this great 
great quote about please make me two with nature. Um, he was such an urban New York City guy. He just was uncomfortable in those pristine, beautiful surroundings that was, you know, Mother Nature. I, on the other hand, felt almost like a moment of epiphany. And I felt the specialness of being surrounded, the quiet that was almost thundering. And I, in that moment, understood the preciousness we have in our national parks, uh, not only in the USA and Canada. I think there's some of the most stunningly beautiful slivers of natural beauty we have left on this continent. Um, I have idyllic moments that crowd my memory because they are many of the three years that I was extremely lucky to live in Florence, Italy. And all of the times we would take off by bus or by train or sometimes hitchhiking, those were the days, into Tuscany, which I came to know very well. And people will roll their eyes and say, well, duh, Tuscany is just one big gorgeous moment. And it is, but we saw corners of it that had never seen a non-Italian, and that Michelangelo would feel very comfortable in seeing as far as the eye could see the rolling hills and the cypresses and the dirt roads and the wine-growing region around Chianti that really haven't changed mm. much at all in hundreds of years. It's interesting when I, I asked you, and I, I didn't mean to say the best, I just think, because uh, I get that same question a lot, and you know, you can't say what's your favorite place when you're a traveler that loves wherever mm. you go, but things that just sit in your mind as a, as a gorgeous memory. And when you said Yosemite, I thought, yeah, for me, people might expect me to say, you know, something in Paris or, or yeah. whatever, but I think of Banff and Jasper up in uh, Canada or rafting on a river in Idaho where you get up in the middle of the night and you can see the constellations reflecting on the <gasps> river. And there's just some sort of peace and tranquility and you reminded what a beautiful planet we live on. And then, of course, you go to Florence and you go to the museums and you all can celebrate all the things that people have done with their creative spirit. But boy, just to connect with nature, that's a, a very important part of this, isn't it? Yes. And when I did the USA and Canada book, the second of these two books, um, 1,000 Places to See in the USA and Canada, I was always astounded that well-intentioned friends would say to me, well, how will you ever find a thousand places in North America? Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, you haven't gotten off the couch much, have you? Uh, yeah. Because what we have here just under our nose is something nothing less than remarkable, um, yeah. majestic, sweeping, awesome, gorgeous, sometimes just downright fun and available and great for a long weekend or a short weekend or half a tank of gas or whatever. So, you know, if if you can't, get on a plane for 22 hours for whatever reason. You don't have the time or you don't have mm -hmm. the money because those are usually the two things that dictate where we go and why and for how long. Look what we have here just down the road. We're talking with <laughs> Patricia Schultz, and she's written the classic now, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, and that's the global coverage, and she's got a new book called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die in the USA and Canada. Patricia Schultz is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's here to tempt us to find out for ourselves just what we're missing about some of the most intriguing places around the world. Patricia, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You know, one of my, my least favorite assignments is when the European Travel Commission asks me to write an article and feature all 20 countries that they're promoting equally. <laughs> and I just hate that because I don't want to yeah, talk equally <laughs> about Cyprus and France or Tuscany and Istria, you know. I, I got to wonder, when you assembled yours, how much of it is subjective? I mean, do you think, oh, I got to have one for every country? Or did you have any quotas that way that you dealt with? Well, to be frank, and that's a great question that is not surprising coming from you because you very much are in a similar situation often with the USA book because I wanted to really do justice and not overlook places perhaps that 
I would have only because I didn't know them as well as I should. I kind of did this big spreadsheet, and I wanted a balance where a balance was necessary. But that was only my foundation, and then I took it from there. So every state is represented. Out of no sense of obligation, apart from the fact that every state needs to be represented, because each has its own specialness and its own corners of surprise and its its own little gems that, within the context of that state, are real standouts. Mm-hmm. So, would you compare, you know, the best barbecue pit in South Carolina to um, Denali National Park? No, you can't, and so I didn't. But <laughs> I think this great mix. Of everything across the board, from the unknown to the world famous, from the humble to the awesome, is what makes up each of these books. The first book, I have to say, I was a little bit more naive and overwhelmed. It was the world, and I didn't pretend to know it as intimately as I should have. But I also understood that, to the limited degree that I knew it, I had more than enough material. Because a thousand places, when you're talking about the globe, is almost embarrassing.、Mm-hmm. It's a sliver. It's a beginning. The, an embarrassment of riches. It's a good、uh, challenge for this life, I'd say. Now, Patricia, you used to write for Access Travel Guides, is that right? Uh, yeah, it was one of a few different travel guides I wrote for. I wrote for Fromers and Berlitz for Access. Which、um, areas did you cover as a as a guidebook writer in, in specific?、Um, a number of different ones,、uh, predominantly Europe and most especially for Italy. I lived on and off in Italy for ten years, and that for me was, I think, really an integral piece in my puzzle、mm. that was life. Because、um, not only did I come to know. A particular area of the world that is just incredibly, really astonishingly rich in history and culture and food and gastro. I mean, really, the list goes on. But also, I used it as a base、uh, from which I traveled quite extensively through Europe early on, and came to understand when most people in their twenties and thirties were, you know, feverishly working at whatever. They were lucky enough to have secured as a post graduation job. I was off doing my gap year that became many gap years, and、mm. uh, was enriched in ways that I hadn't anticipated. To me, it was quite a surprise. Patricia,、uh, let's just get right into Britain, for instance, because I love the way you covered Britain. And just tell me what comes to mind. Why these places made the cut? For instance, Windsor Palace. I think that of the countless. Castles that are open to the public. This perhaps was the most enlightening to me. We had an excellent guide who brought to life centuries and centuries of British history. I understood more about, I think, British royalty and the part they played in history in the afternoon we spent there than I did maybe a semester back in、mm. school. Like I think Blenheim is the single most important country mansion or countryside palace to see in Britain, and, and you listed it also. What did you like about Blenheim Palace? Well, I, I、um, the whole Winston Churchill connection for me. I believe he was born there.、Um, the gardens as well are considered some of the、mm-hmm. you know the idea of the English garden. I think around the world they're known to have、uh, created some of the most magnificent anywhere on the globe, and the gardens in, at Blenheim are particularly renowned for. Being outstanding any time of the year, particularly in the spring, summer, and fall. So that's a great package deal. Then you get the wonderful exhibit about Churchill and his life, and then at the same time you get a classic example of a formal English garden. Yes, and also I think what most people don't know that rather than feel that、um, when you go to London you can see only London, it's such a small and accessible country that all of these day trips and、mm-hmm. they are feasible and super enjoyable as day trips are really possible by the dozens. And Blenheim, I think, is one of the first that I would suggest to anyone. Um, Hadrian's Wall. I find that one of the more evocative places. There's a lot of Rome in Britain, and you chose Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, and who knew? To me, that was quite an eye opener. A lot of all of I think travel in general is a real who knew experience for me because of the years I spent in Rome. I just never understood that the Romans really got very far beyond Italy. To know that they expanded and flourished、um, as far north as 
what is now Great Britain. To me, you know, in the baths also in the city, the magnificent city of mm. Bath, I, I didn't quite put it all together until I visited. And again, it, it drove home to me the fact that travel is education and historically enlightening. I understood that the Romans had been there 2,000 years ago and had created this wall, Hadrian's Wall, named after the Emperor Hadrian in that moment, mm-hmm. uh, to keep out those you know, marauding barbarians to the north. Now, Patricia, you put in both Oxford and Cambridge, and I felt that was a little bit of a cop-out. You didn't choose one or the other. (laughs) Were you concerned about offending people, or or why did you list them both? Oh, I was never concerned about (laughs) offending people because invariably you're going to offend people left, right, (laughs) and center. Um, One person said to me, I would never buy this book because there's just not enough information about each of these places. And another person said to me, I could never buy this book because there's so much information. Really, do you need a thousand? (laughs) Why not just ten? So Oxford and Cambridge, to me, you know, to one, I, I went with friends who had visited from Oxford, uh, who had, I'm sorry, graduated from Oxford, and to the other, um, again, with friends who had graduated from Cambridge. So they were both guided by insiders who knew these places as only a, you know, undergraduate can. And I relived as they did the nostalgia and and got to see the museums connected with each of the universities that I probably would have overlooked because I don't usually associate excellent collections of world-class art with universities, although it's probably a very common thing that was not part of my orbit. Boy, those are good examples of colleges that have great collections of art. Yeah, excellent. You must have had a huge impact on the places that you recommended. And uh, for instance, you recommended not only just hotels supporting these various places, but you recommended a few hotels actually as destinations in themselves. Uh, Nancy from Kennesaw, Georgia, emails us and she writes, many of the listings in your book are specific hotels rather than place destinations, such as the pyramids. What was it about these hotels that pushed them onto the top 1,000 list in your book and, and turned them from places to sleep to actual destinations? Well, I collect hotels the way most people collect matchbooks, although that also is a thing of the past, I'm glad to say. But I love hotels, and I'm extremely attracted to hotels of great history, uh, the 15th century castles in Ireland that are now welcoming guests, the 15th century monastery in Cusco, where we spent the night before striking off for Machu Picchu, tiny little uh, abandoned Renaissance monasteries in the hill towns of Italy, which now take paying guests. So um, anything that to me is every bit as enlightening from a cultural and historical and architectural standpoint as a regular hotel to me is something that sits apart. And the big hotels, you know, the the five-star hotels in Paris or in Bangkok and Hong Kong that are really, you know, five stars plus plus, you know, you haven't won the lottery. You can't afford to spend one night or even two, but go for high tea or go to sit in the lobby and people watch or go to the restaurant, which, you know, often is one of the best. These are times when you can eat probably better than anywhere else in town in these restaurants, which is not something you could say 10 years ago when the concept was quite different. So, um, yes, I love these big hotels. The Historic Hotels of America has a wonderful collection of hotels that need to be a minimum of 50 to 100 years old that are sprinkled across America and are great places to stay. And so, yes, especially if they're in the middle of town or in the middle of these cities, I like to go and just sit in Mm -hmm. the lobby and see something of the magnificent architecture. I think that is a great tip, and I'm glad that you listed hotels as destinations and also that you remind people that you don't need to be able to afford $500 a night to stay there. I used to pop in on the Posadas and the Paradores in Spain and Portugal that are historic places that I couldn't afford to sleep in necessarily, but you go there for breakfast or for tea, and you experience that. When you're in Singapore, you can pop into the Raffles Hotel and get a sense of that elegant, you know, 19th century kind of aristocratic travel. Uh, in India, you've got these Maharajas palaces that are just earning their keep by renting out to travelers. So and they're magnificent. It's great that you did that. And then what you call home for that night is actually the destination. 
Yeah. And, you know, again, like I said, if you are lucky enough to be able to stay there, then all the more power to you. I often mix it up in that I'll save, you know, if I've got X number of nights, two nights will be in a kind of over-the-top place that, mm-hmm. you you know, you can only dream about staying. And then you mm-hmm. stay two nights at a and b or an inn or with the family, et cetera. And then, you know, again, on to your next city and something particularly dreamy, mm-hmm. um, and then followed by three nights of not so dreamy. So you get a little bit of everything and the same with eating or the same with anything, you know, a picnic for lunch and then a great place mm-hmm. for dinner. Because let's be realistic, travel can be expensive, but it doesn't need to impact the experience at all if you're clever and if you've done research and a little bit of homework. With our dollar the way it is, that's so important. And just to remind people, hotels are public spaces. Many of them are historic buildings that are obligated to let the public in because they're inhabiting something that is part of the heritage of this country. And even with our, you know, with our weak dollar, one of my things in Italy is I've just decided, okay, I'm going to have tap water and take the extra $4 and add it on to the price <laughs> of the glass of wine so I can really still have a nice glass of wine. <laughs> uh, we got Adrian on the line in Seattle. Uh, Adrian, uh, join us in our conversation. We're talking with Patricia Schultz, the author of A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. Thanks for your call, Adrian. Hi, Rick. One of the destinations that I think is uh, um, a great choice for anyone who's interested in history um, and experiencing other cultures is Syria, which is primarily, it's like Egypt before um, Champollion. If you kneel down in the desert of Syria and, and look across the sand, you probably see a hundred tells from any, any place that you are. Um, and the excavations that have taken place range from ancient sites at Mari um, through to the Crusader castles of Chevalier and Marqueb, which is on the coast, and to places like Ugarit, um, uh, which is near Latakia, where the first consonant language was developed. I mean, Syria's got a wealth of, of interest, both historical and cultural, for any traveler. Now, Adrian, you sound like quite a scholar when you talk about places in Syria. It, it seems like a, a precondition for really getting the most out of those kind of visits is to know a little bit about what you're looking at. Actually, there's, there's two ways to look at it. If, if you know a lot about um, history, or if you even know just a little bit about history before you go to Syria, I think it would really help your visit. The other way to look at it is that if you do go to Syria, um, you're inspired to learn about it by seeing the sites, even if you don't have the background knowledge. So you can kind of approach it both ways. Yeah, as long as you're um, lively in the mind as you travel. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Syria. Well, thanks, Adrian. A lot of people don't consider Syria. Oh, Syria. I would go back to Syria in a nanosecond. To me, it was one of those um, really those experiences that just spun me around and kept me thinking about Syria for years afterwards. It's very, very special. The people are wonderful. The Souks of Aleppo, I think, are one of my favorite marketplaces anywhere. A kind of heady experience where, you know, the sounds, the sights, the smells, you can bring them back up in your memory in a minute. Adrian, when was the last time you were in Syria? Uh, The last time I was in Syria is about, um, I think, just over five years ago, but I was fortunate enough to lead about 30 groups through Jordan and Syria and Israel and the region, so I know it fairly well. Would you still go now, given the tension in the region? I think it would be very interesting to go to Syria now. Yes, I I wouldn't hesitate to go. I I don't think there's much of a security threat at all. I think it's an interesting time to go there simply because, of course, there's a lot of Iraqi refugees in Syria. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also Syria has always been fairly open to tourism, and lots of Europeans go there without an issue. I I think... um, Hmm. Our, our viewpoint of the Middle East is particularly influenced by the current political situations and our role in them. Yeah, I was just in Iran recently, and I'll tell you, it's uh, much more accessible than you would imagine. I was surprised or impressed that there was a lot of Europeans going there, and it was about as casual as smoking, oh, yes. a, you know, as, as casual as smoking a Cuban cigar in France. It's just no big deal, but it's a big deal here. And uh, the Lonely Planet book sells very well in Iran. Whereas Americans go there and they think, wow, I didn't even know you had tourism here. So it's, um, <laughs> it's true. You can go to a lot of places on this planet that from an American perspective, it might seem a little dicey. But if you're French or Australian or, or Irish, it's just sort of another place to go and enjoy some uh, different food and some great weather and rich culture. Adrian, thanks so much for your call. You're very welcome, Rick. Patricia, one thing I really enjoyed about your book was experiences. You had the hammam, the Turkish bath, chocolate to die for, uh, the cooking of Paul Bocuse. Uh, coaching through Bavaria, the red light district in Amsterdam. Uh, tell me your thinking about when you list things, not just to list uh, Munich, but to list catching a horse-drawn carriage and riding under the great castles of Mad King Ludwig. Each of these places 
in and of itself is an experience, and it's almost semantics, how you word it, how you present it, et cetera. But I wanted each of the thousand places to be kind of mini adventures so that not only do I send you to a particular place, but I encourage you to do a particular thing and how to do it and where to do it and what time of the year to go. And if there's a particular festival that happens once a year, try to make that happen. Try to arrange that into your schedule so that each of the thousand places, in fact, gives you many suggestions as from somebody who has experienced it themselves. So a lot of these experiences that you mentioned, in fact, are almost cliches, but I'm a big fan of cliches. I think because over the centuries, travel is nothing new, that these become cliches for very good reason. Do you want to go to Venice and not take a gondola through the back canals of Venice and see the house where Marco Polo grew up and see corners of Venice as he must have seen them pretty much unchanged just because it's tacky and touristy and expensive? Uh, No, it's almost a must-do. It's a very inherent part of the magic of Venice, as with the hammam in Istanbul or the red double-decker buses in London, a lot of people rolling their eyes. But it's the way I experience them, and I find those particular cities the most enjoyable. Ideally, there are hundreds of such recommendations in both books. You know, I'm so glad you say that because I have an ongoing um, lesson I want to give my tour guides when they lead our groups around Europe is this. I don't care how tacky and tired you think slap dancing and yodeling is. Slap dancing and yodeling is the tie roll. And when we take our groups there, we want to see some good slap dancing. Uh, So those are the cliches. If you're a tour guide and you've seen it six times a year for the last decade, well, that's too bad. This is your traveler's one trip in a lifetime to the Tyrol or to Venice or to Big Ben, and they're going to do that classic dream-come-true travel experience. And what you said is true. It it oftentimes is the first and only time that people will go to a particular destination. You know, the realities of going back and visiting again, who knows? There's Mm -hmm. just so many other things to see. Are you really going to return? So see it all. See the cliches. See the usual stuff. See the unusual stuff. Just see as much as you can. Hit the ground running and enjoy it as much as you can because it may be the only time you're ever there. Patricia Schultz, I've thoroughly enjoyed Dreaming About the World with You. And congratulations on the huge success of your book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And when people have seen all thousand places in the world, I I bet you'd like them to pick up that book, A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, in the United States and Canada, and keep going. Oh, you could keep going for many lifetimes. Thank you for having me, Rick. Happy travels, Patricia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Up next, we get into the spirit of Halloween by opening up the phones for your calls at 877-333-7425. Let's hear about the scariest places from your travels and ancient places where you felt a connection to another world of an entirely different dimension. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Boo. It's that time of year when things are spooky, and in your travels, you can encounter some spookiness, and that's what we're talking about right now. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. And if you have a scary story you want to share on the email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Jack's on the phone in Sussex, New Jersey. Jack, thanks for your call. Yeah, actually, uh, we were on a tour in England, and uh, one of the towns we stopped at was a little town called Stanton. And we went to a church called St. Michael's Church. And what I like to do is sometimes I take my my compass with me, and what that does is it looks for electromagnetic fields, which are kind of like creepy areas. We checked out the graveyard in the church, and we found some strong magnetic fields in one corner of the church. So we went there, and it was like, you know, you just got this, like, real creepy feeling when you're in that area in in the church. Really? Yeah, it was so it, it it registered on your meter, and you could feel it in your gut. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Are you like just a normal person, or do you have this happen to you all the time? 
No, I, I'm just a, just a normal person. We uh, usually like to take our little compass around. I don't have a regular uh, magnetic meter, but I just take my compass. And what was nice, I was trying to show the other people on the tour about how to do it, too. So they really got into it, and everybody had a compass. They were starting to check out different areas. So let me so get this forth. straight, Jack. You got a, just a regular compass, and you walk right. around, and it will act erratic when there's something uh, creepy going on. Yes, exactly, because what it'll do, it'll point away from magnetic north and go to an area of high magnetic intensity. And what might that be? Usually it's an area of a paranormal uh, okay. area where you may have a ghost or, or now, some other type of paranormal activity. I don't know if you realized this, uh, Jack, but you were at uh, a church dedicated to St. Michael, and you can conclude when you have a church dedicated to St. Michael that there was some pagan activity there before Christianity because when the Christians came in a thousand years ago or something, they would make a point to put St. Michael on that spot because he was the saint that would take care of pagan spirits. Well, that's pretty weird. Yes, that's, that's so. creepy right there. <laughs> Anytime you find a church of St. Michael, you can pretty much predict there was a Stonehenge kind of thing underneath if you dig down there. Well, that would make sense then why I was getting high magnetic readings then. No, I'm, I'm getting kind of creeped out right here. It's just yeah, that's it's so cool, exciting. Huh? You know, that reminds me once way back when I was a, a minibus tour guide. I would run around Britain with eight people on a minibus. We'd never know where we are going to sleep tonight. And we checked into this one kind of a guest house on a hill, sort of in a windy sort of netherland. And it was a cheap place, and we needed a room, and I didn't have reservations for my tours back then. We checked in, and it was on a ley line. You know, the ley lines are the right. sort of lines that connect all the Stonehenge-type sites and the St. Yep. Michael's and the pagan things, and they crisscross England. And some people think they brought the stones all the way to Stonehenge by taking advantage of the energy along these ley lines. Well, we checked into this guest house, and all of us went to our rooms, and it was so odd. Within, like, five minutes, we were all out in the hallway thinking, we can't spend the night here. This is too creepy. And like a bunch of cartoon characters, we all grabbed our bags, ran back to our bus, loaded it up, and just drove out of there. We vacated. It was so wow. it was so creepy. So yeah, this part cool. of England is that way. And if you go to Glastonbury, that's sort of the capital of all this. Yes, okay, yeah, we were we were in that area. But that was the only, uh, St. Michael's Church was the only one I really got a real good uh, reading from. I found a new use for my compass now. I'm going to go to St. Michael's Church and see if it quivers in a creepy kind of way. Yes, yeah, what you want to do is before you go into the churchyard, check your, your north reading so you make sure that you know which way your north reading is. So if the needle does move out of the north, you'll know. But uh, it oh, was pretty man. cool, and sometimes it'll actually go around. You wouldn't want to do this alone. You take your travel partner with you. <laughs> yes, and that's okay. for sure. That's for sure. Take Jack in New Jersey, you. thanks a lot, and, and, and stay safe. Okay, okay thank bye you, bye. Rick. Okay, bye-bye. Anne's on the phone in Elwood Park, Illinois. Anne, thanks for your call. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, were you listening to Jack's story I there? I was. It sounded very creepy. Wow. What is your, what is your uh, creepiness overseas? Uh, well, my friend and I, two years ago, were just hanging around in Prague at about 11 o'clock at night, and we know that the city is a little bit haunted with ghosts here and there. So we were just taking pictures, just goofing around, and all of a sudden she takes a picture of me and she goes, there's something in the background. So I turned around behind myself to see if there was anything there, and there was Absolutely nothing. I mean, there was no people around, nothing. We look at the picture, and we zoom in onto it, and there's these two figurely-looking things. It looks like blurs. But then we zoomed in a little bit closer, and one of them looked like a hunched-over person, and the other one actually had this blurred-out face to it. And we just, we just stopped where we were. We're like, oh, my goodness, we are in Prague, and there's ghosts around us. We just, needless to say, we just went home and right afterwards we were a little bit freaked out. <laughs> so now, you actually have this image on I your... I do. I should send it to you. If you email it to us, we'll, we'll put it on our website. Okay, definitely. Yeah, That and is cool. The zoomed in part two, I'll show you. So we will share it with our listeners who are bold enough to go to our website <laughs> and check good. that out. Wow. Perfect for Halloween. Behind you, there was two blobs that turned out to be faces. Yes. Where One. were you in Prague? Um, we were right in the middle of the town square. Town square, because that's where the Jan Hus statue is. Yeah, exactly. And Jan Hus was that reformer who was burned at the stake a hundred years exactly. before, before Martin Luther. Mm -hmm. And every time I look at Jan Hus, and I, I think of the flames engulfing his body, yeah. and I think of the national pride the Czechs have for exactly. a man who translated the Bible into their language so they could read it direct without uh, monks and priests uh, you know, editing it for them and so yep. on. And I just think there's some spookiness there. There's there some really stuff is. going on. Now, one thing i got to ask you, 
had you consumed any of the Czech beer before this happened? <laughs> Not that night. Because but it's previous nights we did. You know, the Czech beer it hits your table like water exactly. does here. It's and, very strong. And it's very strong. <laughs> it I, for is. years I went to the Czech Republic traveling around and I'd have a beer at lunch, not because I order it, but because it's sort of the default. That's what they give you. Yep. And I noticed my productivity after lunch was way down. <laughs> And I, I never put it together until later I learned that the beer was so much stronger. And I, I had what I called Czech knees. So if, uh-huh. if you're seeing funny faces and it's after you've had some of that Czech beer, I think you've got to discount that. But you, exactly. did it, you did it alcohol-free. No, alcohol-free on that night. Are you going back to Prague and uh, see if you can meet your friends again? Hopefully sometime soon. Um, All right. Hopefully one day we'll see some other ghosts around. Yeah, it's a great city with or without ghosts. But I know Prague is one of the more haunted places in Europe. Yeah. Take care. Thank you. Okay, so. bye-bye. Thanks, bye. So Jenny's on the line in Houston. Jenny, are you okay? I am. How are you, Rick? I'm getting kind of scared. Everybody's had these stories, (laughs) and I just hope they're not coming this way. But uh, do you have something you can share about scary things in your travels? I do. My husband and I were in Paris a couple summers ago, and we went to visit the catacombs. And you know there's a tunnel that you walk through before you enter the actual room with the bones and the skulls in it. And right when we got to that entrance, there was a sign in French that warns you that you're about to enter the Empire of the Dead, and I kind of made a mocking, ooh, scary noise. Okay, let me interrupt you here, because maybe our listeners don't quite know what the catacombs are, but way back in the French Revolution times and Napoleon times, they decided that graveyards were not hygienic, and they decreed that all of the graveyards around the churches would be emptied and turned into public spaces, and they would move all of the bones to the old quarry uh, tunnels under the streets of Paris. So they spent a whole generation, really, carting all these bones under the streets, and they're stacked neatly, and it is literally millions of skulls and tibia and fibia. And today, it's an attraction where tourists can go down this long, long, long stairway and then walk through these ancient quarry tunnels surrounded by millions of bones from unearthed cemeteries of all the churches in Paris. Now, with that in mind, you saw the arch announcing that what was happening, and you can carry on with your story. Sure, that the Arch was announcing that you were about to enter the Empire of the Dead. And so, like I said, I I said, ooh, scary, and my husband took a picture of me, and we crossed the threshold, and immediately my husband's flashlight popped and went completely dark, and my flashlight went out. And we fiddled with them for a couple of minutes, but couldn't get them to come back on, So we stepped back out into the tunnel, and I kind of said, oh, I shouldn't have been irreverent. I'm so sorry. (laughs) My flashlight immediately came back on, and we remained very reverent throughout the rest of our tour in the catacombs. And like you said, the skulls and the tibias and fibias are right there. You could practically touch them. Um, But the scariest part to me was when we were working on our travel blog, we uploaded that picture. And to this day, when you visit our travel blog, that picture just shows up as as a red X. You can't see it at all for some reason. The moment all of the spirits of all those bones of the permanent Parisians put your camera in the dark. (laughs) Exactly. You know, when you're down there, you you can almost smell the bones, can't you? And it's very cool and crisp down there beneath oh, the city. You know, you've heard of Plaster of Paris. They have all yes. this uh, white, chalky stuff, because that's what they were uh, mining, apparently, or quarrying. And when I go into the catacombs for the rest of the day, my feet are caked in this white stuff. And That's right. It's all over your shoes. And you, you remind yourself, you've entered and survived the empire of the (laughs) dead. On my very first time, I went there as a teenager, and that was before it was very sophisticated, and you could just basically go down there and uh, rummage around. And I remember as a crass, uh, thoughtless teenager, (laughs) I picked up a skull. Oh, wow. And I I looked at it, and I could do that Hamlet thing, you know. And I I came (laughs) just moments from putting it into my little day bag and, and, and stealing it. And I thought, this would be so cool to have a skull on my mantle when I get home. And I decided not to. Just because I thought it would, it would spook me, it would haunt me, it might even uh, oh, curse yeah, me, definitely. you know, it could curse you. Uh, and then uh, I went back a couple years later and I had my nerve up and I was going to actually do it. And then all the skulls were wired in place and they wouldn't let anybody do that. And they had guards checking your bags as you left the place. So apparently they had some people stealing skulls. And that reminds me a, a little story of my own, uh, Jenny. I was in 
Romania once, visiting friends, and this was during the Soviet era, and uh, I had to shuttle around every night to a different home. And in Romania, they have a tradition of unearthing the graves of their dead grandparents after a couple of generations, and they literally put the skull that's been rotted clean, you know, on their mantle. So you're in somebody's living room, and right next to the TV and and over by the magazines on the mantle, you've got Grandpa's skull (laughs) sitting on the mantle. And I thought, that is a unique, a unique tradition you find only in Romania. Wow, that is incredible. Hey, well, when people go to Paris, would you recommend that they enter the Empire of the Dead? Absolutely. It's so fascinating to see the way the skulls have survived the ages. Some are green, some have holes in them. It's just really fascinating. And with one caveat, respect the dead. Absolutely. All right, Jenny in Houston, thanks for your scary call. Thanks, Rick. Great to talk to you. Take care. Stay safe. Okay, you too. Jerry's on the phone in Minneapolis. Jerry, thanks for your call. Well, my wife and I are relatively new travelers, but uh, we were in Paris two years ago and went to the catacombs. Both of us uh, are claustrophobic to start with. <laughs> so, so you were it, just... It probably wasn't the best place in the world to go. Now, these were the same catacombs Jenny was just talking about, right? Rue Denfer, I believe. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. We found it absolutely amazing. Pretty much experienced the same thing. Just It was amazing to see the mortality that's been stacked artistically throughout the catacombs. And it's interesting to note that all the dead from each church is collected together, and there's a thoughtful little plaque that says, these are the remains of the parishioners of this or that church from this or that arrondissement. It is, and the stories that I heard at least were that the priests brought all the remains down in the middle of the night in black carts. Yeah. Um, so the, the Parisians did not see this actually happening. You know, ultimately it cleaned up the city, and uh, they have nice public spaces around the churches now. And as we travel all over Europe, we've got to remember the churchyards used to be cluttered with uh, tombstones because everybody wanted to be close to the church in, in their death to wait the uh, second coming or his day of uh, salvation or whatever. It was not hygienic, and it was congesting things. In the age of uh, revolutionary time, when, when people were being so logical and less emotional and people were even questioning whether religion made sense at all, uh, Napoleon said, we've just got to unearth all these stupid graveyards and get them outside of town or, or move them out. And that really made a big change on what we see in Europe today. My wife and I, basically, our scary part was trying to get out with all these crystallized oh, yeah. skulls and everything. But Now, now you uh, had an experience in the Père Lachaise Cemetery also? Oh, um, well, to me, that cemetery is just amazing. But I saw the most eerie, I guess it's a mausoleum, but they're all eerie there. I mean, it's such beautiful artwork. But there's one, it's... Uh, the family Raspail? Raspail, yes. Where it's just a normal-sized mausoleum. But we were there um, close to sunset. There's like a granite or marble figure in mourning mm. that has its hand up on the mausoleum. It's a full-size figure, and it's just totally draped in um, what would look like mourning rags. And it's, uh, but it's out of stone. It's out of stone, yeah. and there's, there's no face. You know, that's that's a whole art style that I've noticed in cemeteries around Europe. It's sort of late 1800s, I think, and it's this Belle Epic or Art Nouveau something, or I don't know what, but it's very super emotional. The National Cemetery in Milano is really great that way. And, of course, in Paris, the ultimate cemetery is the one you're talking about, Père Lachaise. And we've even got a guided tour of that cemetery in our book that's that's very popular because you go there and you can see, you know, Jim Morrison and Frederick Chopin and, and uh, lots of Oscar famous... Wilde. Per- Oscar Wilde. He's the one that's covered with uh, lipstick, isn't he? Uh, yes, I, I myself didn't kiss it. My wife thought about it, but she thought, this is <laughs> too hygienic, you know. But you but, can wander around forever in that place, and it can be spooky. But especially when you get up into more of the um, the World War II survivors, the Holocaust survivors. And up into oh, and the there's Jewish powerful stuff the from the Holocaust and World War II, a lot of heroics and a lot of memorials there. Jerry, thanks for your call, Jerry, and stay safe this scary time of year, okay? Well, it's actually Halloween is my birthday, so it's kind of a fun one, too. (laughs) Then you'll be okay. (laughs) That's a good one. Okay, happy travels. And Michael's on the line in Raleigh, North Carolina. Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Uh, We were uh, doing sort of the Luther's uh, footsteps uh, tour in uh, in Germany, going to Wittenberg and Eisenach and Wartburg Castle and so forth. We were uh, visiting the site just north of uh, Erfurt, where Luther was uh, supposedly hit by lightning, and when he prayed to uh, the saint and vowed that he would become a monk, 
if he was saved. And it's kind of hard to find, but a very nice little park, very small with some monuments and, and a nice grove of trees, very nice little spot. And a few nights later, we were camping, and uh, we were in a terrible, terrible thunderstorm. You know, we were in a dome tent with my wife and son, and it was raining and uh, lightning and thunder. And I've, I've never been in a thunderstorm this, this strong or the thunder and lightning so close. So that could was, scare you into the arms of the Lord. Uh, we survived, of course, and I didn't vow to become a monk <laughs> afterward, but you could really feel... You could imagine uh, what somebody 500 years ago that really was, in those days, the weather was, was God angry or something ex- like that. Exactly. I mean, you could really feel that in that thunderstorm. Yeah, people who don't know the story of Martin Luther, how he really got serious about his, his uh, mission on this planet, that lightning storm was quite pivotal, wasn't it? He was going back to effort to, to go to law school, Huh. which uh, his father uh, wanted him to, to be, a, be a lawyer, yeah. not a monk. And hmm. uh, that was the pivotal point that uh, he continued on into effort and walked into the monastery instead of the, uh, instead of the law school. I don't want to draw too much into that, but had that lightning not occurred, every Christian today might still be Roman Catholic. That's a, a big thought, possibility. Thought-provoking. All right, Michael, thanks for your call. Thank you. Oh, boy, when you go to Europe, you need more than a money belt sometime. The place is crawling with ghosts. Thanks for your calls. This is Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves. Happy Halloween. Et sorte des vont à travers l'ombre, courant et sautant sous le grand Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in the spooky seaside town of Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their engineering help today. It's easy to join us as a caller on Travel with Rick Steves. There is a link to send us your email address so that we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Or post your comments anytime on our radio message board. And join us again next week for another spine-tingling edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.